0: Okay, so um, I wanna start off by talking about the idea of deviance. So first of all, just to be very clear about what I mean by this term, I'm not using this synonymously with crime. Um, Instead, I mean it kind of in the ways that you usually would think about it or that normal people would usually think about it, you know, academics aren't really normal, um, but like, you know, connotations of weirdo, freak, asshole, like those are various forms of of deviance. Um, Typically, what we kind of include in in this set of category, or in this category of behaviors is, it's something that's atypical, it's out of the norm, it's not normal, abnormal, and it's usually deemed to be problematic. So it's either considered immoral, or harmful, um, or just bad mm-hmm. in some way. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to make clear that it's not necessarily objectively harmful, it's not necessarily like, it's hard to be objective about um, morality, but it's not something that's objectively bad, but it's something that people believe is bad for whatever reason. Um, so it's not necessarily illegal, moral, harmful, and so on. Um, I also want to kind of clarify this general type of deviance from other forms of deviance that people have used in the literature, including things like elite deviance or positive deviance. Um, Innovation kind of by uh, definition is in some form um, uh, deviance because it's kind of atypical, uh, but it's a lot of times seen as, you know, a good thing. Like we have, you know, schools of innovation, centers for innovation, innovation grants and so on. Um, So I'm very specifically talking about what we might think of as negative deviance, but usually that we just call deviance. Okay. Um, the other thing I want to emphasize about deviance is that it's something that is not, again, it's not objective, but it's socially constructed. There's a process by which people decide that something is considered deviant or not. Uh, so this is some underlying process. And for this, I'm going back to uh, Howie Becker's work um, in his book on labeling theory, where he explains that deviance is the product of a process which involves responses of other people to the behavior. So it's a kind of a dynamic uh, model rather than the static thing of you are a deviant, you always will be a deviant and so on. Um, but it's something that can be kind of contingent depending on the social uh, context, uh, the settings, and especially who to whom you're talking. Okay. Uh, another piece of deviance that I want to clarify is kind of consistent with this idea of social context matters, that it's a fluid or contingent category, is it's going to vary depending on um, kind of from perspective, so you, you can always have deviance and uh, kind of normals or conformists, and then you can switch those. Um, and so this is a, another quote from um, from Becker, where he says uh, social groups create deviance by making the rules whose infraction constitutes deviance, and by applying those rules to particular people and labeling them as outsiders. But here's the important part: the rule breaker may feel his judges are the outsiders. So basically, insiders can think the outsiders are deviants, but those outsiders can be insiders in another group and think that out- the original insiders are actually the outsiders. Okay. And then this is uh, from South Park. Um, they made a joke at one point in one of the episodes, like, you know, basically if you want to be a non-conformist, you have to conform to the way that we do things. So again, this insider-outsider thing. Every social group has its norms, um, and therefore every social group has some form of, of deviance. Okay. So um, <coughs> the kind of problem, though, is that people have kind of, I don't want to say stopped because that's too official, but basically people stopped studying deviance. Um, it was really popular to study in, like, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. Uh, it apparently peaked in the 70s, but since then, it's really gone away. Um, people still use the term, uh, like, crime and deviance. There all these textbooks about deviance, which are really just criminology theories about, like, why people commit crime, um, and so that's a little problematic. Um, but just to kind of show you a couple of um, indications, so this is uh, a Google Ngram. You can very easily run these on, on Google. They're not supposed to be, like, you know, the most, uh, you know, rigorous level of uh, data collection, but it's just kind of meant to be an illustration of, from my read, this seems to be fairly consistent with what's happened in the literature. Um, So it was kind of really popular mid-century, and then it's kind of declined since then. So this is um, a representation over time, kind of starting in 1800, of all uses of the terms deviant and deviance. um, And so then the the y-axis is like the frequency, and so they came back down basically around, um, as we get into the 80s, and just kind of stayed stable um, over time. Uh just to give you another sense, because you know this is um the frequency of these words in all books that have been scanned by Google. Um so just to get a sense of some other things, I've added in the term social control, which uh beginning around the 19 close to 1970s is pretty similar in terms of its use, so oftentimes we use deviance and social control together. Um and so this gives you another sense of kind of what's happening. It kind of went up uh, around the sixties and then kind of leveled off uh, as we get into the eighties. Um, I just wanted to throw in, like, how much of this is because of disciplinary differences. Um, Again, kind of not making any super uh, rigorous claims, but kind of just for comparison, we can see criminology kind of goes up a little bit in this period, but not so much, and then it keeps going up. So, you know, that's an interesting trend. But what's really going on, or what I think is really going on here is... um, People within the field of sociology are not talking about deviance anymore. So, in mid-century, deviant or sorry, sociology was really like the place to study deviance. Criminology as a separate field hadn't really emerged. Like that's really in the 1970s where criminology splits off. Um, but you see these peaks with sociology, deviance, uh, social control, um, and deviant uh, that you don't see um, with with criminology. So I think it really peaked within sociology, and the drop off is really coming from sociology. And in fact, if you look at other disciplines, you don't see this similar peak um, in terms of their overall use. So I really think there's something going on with sociology, and that's fairly consistent with like impressional, impressionistic um, considerations. Okay. So, um, so one question I've been thinking about, and that I've been talking with um, various colleagues about, is basically why do people stop studying deviance? Like, why is this no longer a popular thing? It used to be in the like mid '50s, '60s the top sociologists in, in the U.S. context especially were talking about deviants and coming up with these theories of deviance. Um, and then it just kind of went away. And so I think there are four big reasons for that. One is um, in the 1950s, I think there's a lot more low-hanging fruit, um, and our standards for theory are much more uh, are much higher these days. And the problem is that theories around deviants aren't very good. So putting aside questions about like what explains deviant behavior, which I tend to think is kind of a normatively and empirically problematic uh, theory, as other people have pointed out before. Um, in terms of this question of like why is certain behavior considered deviant or not deviant, and how does that change over time, we don't have a lot of good theory about that. Like, even Becker, that I, I started off with, where he talks about there's this process, this dynamic process by which some behavior gets labeled deviant and, um, and others not. That's in his first chapter of his book, um, Outsiders, and then basically the rest of the book is explaining why people do deviant things. So he sets up this great sociological analysis, saying that you know this isn't an objective category, and then basically trashes that, and then tries to explain deviance, basically read criminality or bad behavior and stuff. So we don't have really good theory to explain this social construction of deviance. Um, another problem with it is kind of a set of normative, um, normative considerations, normative, empirical, but I think normative uh, problems are the, the biggest one, which is in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s when people, when when deviance was having its heyday people were including in the category of deviance not just things like crime, um, but also other types of difference that we today wouldn't say is deviant behavior, or problematic, or bad, or immoral, or anything like that. So specifically, they would talk about things like same-sex relations um, or drug use, and these are things that today we have very different views about, and also, like, science has you know, changed some of those original problematic views. So just to give you an example, um, again, this is coming from Becker, where he explains um, some deviants parentheses, (homosexuals and drug addicts are good examples) develop full-blown ideologies explaining why they are right and why those who disapprove of and punish them are wrong. Um, and that's my, this is like an excerpt from my notes um, on his book, just like, oh. Uh. Um, so there's there's a lot of that. So when you say you want to study deviants, sometimes people think you're like one of those people who has really outdated, problematic views about, you know, reality. Um, a third factor that I think is um, possibly an explanation. Um, although my engrams maybe kind of cast some doubt on this, um, is the rise of criminology as a distinct disciplinary field, and especially in American academic uh, context, this varies a little bit um, from country to country, uh, but focusing mostly on the U.S. context, criminology basically splits off from sociology around the 1970s, it's kind of an ongoing process going back from about the 1910s when you get the first criminology department, um, but it really takes off in the 1970s and you get this massive split. Um, As a consequence, there's been this kind of um, parceling out of who should study what, and so basically anything relating to crime and punishment increasingly has been shoved off to criminology and is increasingly seen as something that's like not befitting sociologists, and we've had an interesting uh, debate about this on Twitter and some blog posts recently about this kind of why people do this, um, but for now I just want to kind of put that out there as one of the things that I think might be explaining why people aren't studying deviance anymore. Finally, within sociology, there's been a big shift in interests. Um, so in the 1950s, 60s, a little bit in the 70s, there was a lot of interest in norms, normality and conformity, and like that was a big focus. But I think if you were to ask people within sociology what the primary kind of set of interests are today, I think that would be replaced by things like power, p- uh, hierarchies, and especially stratification, essentially inequality of various kinds. Um, and whether one used power or inequality, I think basically you're talking about the same set of issues, um, and that's become kind of like the big thing that these days sociologists like by and large are mostly interested in, in a way that norms used to be the, the primary interest. Um, what's interesting about this to me is this doesn't seem like a um, an easy explanation for why deviance went away, because there's so many parallels that we can make between like social hierarchies and how certain things become rendered uh, seen as deviant um, and so on, but I think there's that ongoing history where things where people who had low status or at the bottom of the social hierarchy get rendered deviant, um, and then all those theories trying to explain that behavior rather than trying to explain the processes that make that happen, um, I think people are kind of remembering that rather than looking at the potential of how we can involve power um, hierarchies and so on to explain this uh, construction of deviant. So these are the big four reasons that I think are going on. I'd be curious if you guys have other ideas about why deviance has kind of gone away. Um, but I think these are the, the four primary ones. Okay, so um, one of my kind of <laughs> lifetime goals is to try to bring back the study of deviance because I just think it's really interesting and I think there's a lot of stuff that we could do with it. Um, but I think one of the biggest problems facing kind of reviving the, the field of deviance studies is just the lack of really good theory. And so for that, because um, I don't claim to be like a particularly good theorist who can come up with new theories, um, I'm borrowing from my favorite set of uh, theoretical uh, frameworks and theories, neo-institutional theory, which is actually an organizational theory, um, but uh, as I'll explain in a moment, I'm going to apply this outside of the organizational context. But just to give you uh, kind of some background in new institutional theory, um, again, within this organizational uh, field of um, like sociology, uh, increasingly in business schools and other areas, um, this is a set of scholars who are looking at organizational behavior, not as rational behavior, which is like the classic early organizational theory view, and it's also one that like business schools a lot of times still hold to, Um, So not organizations as behaving as rational actors, basically doing the most efficient and effective thing, but looking at the process by which whatever is seen as rational, um, efficient, effective, and so on, like what's the process of making that thing become uh, seemingly rational? And especially focusing on um, issues like legitimacy. Um, Just to back up for a moment, uh, one of the big things that people in new institutional theory have done that kind of really made them a a useful theory uh, within organizational theory is moving from the study of individual organizations to the study of an organizational field and um, this is a key concept that I'm going to return to, so just to make clear what I'm talking about, an organizational field is basically all of the relevant organizations as well, so it's like the, the focal organizations, so if you're studying prisons, it's all prisons, as well as their regulators, their funders, uh, their clients, and so on. So it would be things like for prisons, and you'd have correctional bureaucracies, you'd have uh, the legislatures, um, you would have like uh, non-government organizations that are like you know, reform and activist groups, you would have the media, you'd have all these different groups that have some sort of impact in kind of changing how we think about prisons or punishment and so on. Okay, um, the other thing that they do in kind of looking at this field is they look at how organizational behavior is really shaped by norms and expectations about how organizations should behave. Uh, which new institutional theorists argue, basically takes place at the field level. So it's in the interactions between these different types of organizations, their funders, regulators, and so on, that we kind of come to this consensus when it within a particular field about what constitutes the right, the efficient, the moral, the effective way of doing something. Okay, um, and ultimately, Organizational behavior, they explain, um, is we expect them to essentially conform to these expectations or to these ideas about what constitutes the right way to do things. Because if they don't, ultimately that organization will lose legitimacy, will lose funding, will lose accreditation or whatever, and ultimately fold up and go away. Um, so legitimacy becomes this really big um, co- uh, concept. Okay. Uh, another big thing that they talk about is the rise of institutional isomorphism. Um, the super jargony term basically means homogeneity. Essentially, all organizations within a field are expected to look, at the same way. Um So like all schools, all prisons, they all tend to look the same, at least in any given historical era. Um So like you go into a kindergarten classroom and they all kind of look the same. They have the alphabet, they have the chalkboard and all that. So this is institutional isomorphism. Um, or the the phrasing that Dimaggio and Powell used when they in, introduced this concept, the striking similarity of organizations within a field, um, and they argue that this this outcome of institutional isomorphism is called by or sorry caused by these strong pressures within the organizational field to conform to certain sets of expectations, and these pressures come from professionals, uh, they come from funders uh, and uh, um, regulators. They come from a general uncertainty about like what's what should we do? Like really what is the most efficient, most effective, the right way to do things? Um, and so these different sources uh, of pressures within the field kind of help to shift everybody in the field to conform to this expectation, um, and then also kind of contribute to the construction of those organizations that don't conform as basically deviant or illegitimate, and then ultimately they go away. One of the um, kind of side processes of of how this happens is also the creation of rational myths. Um, these are generally inaccurate, or at least not evidentiary uh, evidentially um, motivated, uh, or they have weak evidence to support them uh, claims about what's the most efficient way to do something. Um, So a big one uh, from my childhood was was D.A.R.E, Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Uh, Just say no, lots of money was spent on this, forcing uh, 4th and 5th and 6th graders to take this course. Um, And the idea was if you just give out this course, then kids won't do drugs. And lo and behold, turns out all the evidence that has evaluated this say that doesn't work. That was a complete waste of money, and yet in some cases they still do it. Um, but I'm sure you can think of other examples where we have these rational myths where here's the right way to do things and people believe it and they spend money on it and it turns out not so much. Um, the other one from my childhood was fat-free diets and now we know so much better. Um, okay, so uh, so this is kind of something we can, we can see in a lot of um, different contexts. And again, most importantly, if you fail to adhere to these norms, uh, this becomes a massive legitimacy problem for organizations um, which can ultimately be fatal. Now even as I'm saying this, hopefully you can already see the parallels to the idea of deviance and, and social norms. Um, so basically what I want to do is take these concepts and apply them to essentially the individual level, still looking at you know the field, um, but basically we don't need organizations um, to, to use this theory. And so I want to see what happens when we uh, put this um, this theory into a different context and try to come up with a theory of deviance. Okay, so specifically the project that I'm gonna talk about, um, is my attempt to use new institutional theory to understand the social construction of norms um, and, you know, the flip side of that, the designation of what constitutes deviance, specifically in rock climbing. Um, So some steps that kind of I see as part of the new institutional uh, kind of approach is you want to map out the field, figure out who the main actors are, you want to identify what the pressures are to conform, And you want to pay attention uh, to those perceptions of what constitutes rationality, kind of see are those objective ideas or are they kind of socially constructed as well, um, and what role legitimacy plays um, in in these uh, uh, processes. Okay, Um, why rock climbing? It's just awesome, that's like the real reason, Um, but it's actually a really, really good topic. Um, So I'm hoping. At some point to do a book on this, there are going to be like a bunch of different chapters kind of breaking off different chunks of this. Um, I kind of want to make this caveat, there are a lot of moving parts. I'm just going to present a snippet of this. Um, so some of, of the why rock climbing is not going to apply to the, the example I'm going to give today. Um, but one that's going to be really important is this, um, the way in which rock climbing is actually a field with very strong internal norms. Like there are these very strong understandings of like, this is the right way to do things. Um, and there's a lot of like disagreements about this. So on the one hand they're strong, but at the same time not everybody abides them. And this is always the case. Um, so that's really useful uh, for the larger project. Rock climbing is also a really useful um, case study because there's a lot of variation over time on like a lot of the different variables that you might be interested in. So things like um, thinking about rock climbing as originally this very deviant kind of marginal sport-ish um, to something that's basically gone mainstream. Um, I'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, there are changing views about like what the rules of rock climbing are, the norms about how you should climb, that's changed over time. And then something I'm really interested in is the changing demographics. Um, basically, rock climbing in the 1950s was the domain of essentially white men. Um, now it's becoming more diversified. They're, um, beginning in like the late 70s, 80s, you started to see a few more women. Now there are a lot more women in, um, involved, and then if you look beyond like professionals, um, rock climbing has become like this place for like the body positive movement and stuff. So like it's a really increasingly diversified setting. So in that sense, it's also really interesting. Okay, Um, I said I would say a little bit more about rock climbing kind of moving from this like marginal thing that weirdos do to essentially um, mainstream. So these are just a couple of images I wanted to throw out as kind of giving you a sense of, of what I mean by marginal. Um, so rock climbing, like in the 1950s, yeah. this is before the hippie movement, but uh, it kind of anticipated a lot of the ideas of, of that, like, kind of hippie and, like, the original hipster stuff. Um, so on the, uh, left, we have the, um, uh, several, uh, rock climbing greats who had just climbed the mountain behind them a particular route, um, in, uh, less than a day. This is a three thousand foot mountain. Um, and this was, like, an epic accomplishment at the time. Um, and it's still something that people kind of work on doing. Um so but it just kind of gives you a sense of like yeah, their outfits. Um and then some of the other ones, uh these are two pictures on the other side of Fred Becky, who's um kind of the ultimate dirtbag. There's now a movie about him um called uh dirtbag, uh the legend of Fred Becky. He's since passed. Um that the top one says absolutely no rock climbing. Um the one be- below Will delay for Food. Um and this kind of gives you a sense of Uh, this label of dirtbag that I used in the title, this is within the rock climbing community, it's seen as kind of like a badge of honor. This is like a a thing that you embrace, um, but it also speaks to this kind of like quasi hobo lifestyle. Now we have hashtag van life um, and it's becoming again mainstream, um, but there's been this like long standing idea of like not really having a permanent place to live, um, hitchhiking, camping out, um, scrapping by um, essentially, and just. Living on the margins and kind of embracing that lifestyle specifically so that people could climb as much as possible. Um, and you know, not having to have other distractions. Now, however, uh, especially in the last, even the last year, but the last couple of years, um, and it's been an ongoing process. Rock climbing is super mainstream. Like, I mean, to the point where you have like little kid birthday parties at rock climbing gyms. There are like multiple rock climbing gyms per city. I think we have at least two in Toronto. Um, every time I go to a conference, there's usually a rock climbing gym or two in in whatever city. Um, in addition, we've had uh, just in the last like two years, um, there have been mainstream movies with like massive releases. So Free Solo came out, um, The Dawn Wall came out. They're like both now available on iTunes. Um, the Donwall is about um, a late 2017 climb. Uh, two climbers climbed um, a, the mountain that I actually showed this one on the, on the side. Um, a really, really difficult route on this mountain. They were the first ones to use a particular technique to climb this mountain. Um, and it took them like 17 days and they finally did it. And so a movie was made about it. Um, in addition, when they made it to the top, um, like there's a whole bunch of uh, news coverage and stuff. And uh, pr- then President Obama tweeted at the two climbers, um, said, so proud of you, Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgeson, for conquering El Capitan. You remind us that anything is possible. So like the president is tweeting at, you know, these dudes that just climbed this, this mountain. Um, additionally, climbing is now going to be part of the Olympics. Uh, so there are now three types of climbing that have been like, this was a, an ongoing battle to get it included, but it's now going to be um, included. So that's pretty interesting. Okay. So rock climbing is pretty much like normal now. Like, you know, we have, as we already saw, a bunch of people um, in the room are climbers. It's no longer this thing that's like for weirdos. Um, so there's that. Okay, so in terms of what am I actually doing with this project? How am I studying deviance and norms within rock climbing? Um, basically, I'm just cl- getting uh, as much data as I possibly can. I'm essentially trying to be a historian with this project. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, but in terms of my data sets, um, I'm looking at articles in a number of, um, of essentially now online, but uh, even before they're online, magazines um, mostly U.S. based, but there's some Canadian and British um, uh, m- uh, climbing magazines as well. Um, I'm also looking at a climbing forum called Super Topo, um, and they have like these discussions, kind of like Reddit but for climbers. Um, a number of climbing uh, memoirs. So the the picture on the um, the upper right shows you um, some of the memoirs that I've been reading that kind of give you like a first-hand account of uh, of people's lives and what happened. Um, climbing documentaries, not just the two that I, I showed before, but also these like annual releases of short films of people doing different projects, um, trying to climb in different ways. So that's the one on the series of images on the bottom right. In addition, um, some kind of like non-climbing specific um, texts. So I've been looking at some New York Times articles, basically from the 1940s um, to the present, and then just miscellaneous web searches as a um, kind of identify specific things that I go back and do web searches to get more data. Um, In terms of the kind of specific method I'm using, um, for everything that I look at I'm trying to triangulate, so I'm trying to get multiple sources on any given um, kind of episode or thing that I find to kind of get different viewpoints. Um, In general I'm using content analysis and analytical memos, essentially I'm using the tools of ethnography but applying them to kind of a historical, um, and not exactly archival because I'm not going to any archives, but in that sense. Um, historical data, primary sources and so on Um, and this kind of process of using the tools of ethnography even though I'm not interviewing anybody, I'm not like going out and observing, um, I don't go to the climbing gyms to observe, um, so like that process of basically borrowing those tools is something that I've been developing as a a technique to kind of help shore up some of the um, kind of problems with historical methods in a social science context. in general, what I'm looking for is basically any sort of statements um, and reactions about um, kind of norms or rules about climbing. So like when people say like, you know, somebody giving pushback about this particular thing, or when people are discussing what the right way to climb is, um, but always I'm looking for discussions about the right way to, to climb or the right way to be a climber. Um, and then uh, beyond that, beyond these just general statements, I've been especially interested in kind of what I'm calling episodes or, um, this is kind of a version of of something called the trouble case or the case method that goes back um, within the law and society field, the interdisciplinary study of law, um, looking at kind of cases of trouble and then studying those and so this is kind of a a technique that I'm borrowing um, from them. So I'm looking for these specific episodes where there's been some sort of like problem that people then step back and debate and kind of use that as a window into uh, figuring out what the norms are and how people resolve any tensions about those norms. Okay. So my findings. Um, so I want to kind of start off with, um, if this was a quantitative project, this would be like my descriptive statistics portion. So um, so one of the steps is just to kind of map out the field, like who are the actors involved. Um, and I should mention that for, my, uh, for these kind of um, field mappings, these are not supposed to be like super specific because it's actually really hard to represent the field um, in these bubbles, but this tends to be how people um, represent fields. Uh, but just to kind of walk you through this, um, if you think of the big uh, squares, essentially the, the field of like the climbing field, um, there are kind of these n- niches within each field, but they're also overlapping, which is kind of why that's so messy. Um, so on the one hand, especially like today, and you you could definitely do this over time and see like variations, but if you were to do a snapshot today um, and kind of think of this as like the US climbing field, we have sport climbers, we have speed climbers, um, free soloists, boulders, trad climbers, A climbers. Um, And then kind of off to the side like European climbers who also do a bunch of these other things but I just wanted to like make clear that they're also in there. Um, A lot of people like obviously travel to do climbing, so like people go to Morocco, people go to like parts of Canada, people go to Yosemite Valley in in the US. um, So there's always some like international variation going on. Um, Just to explain some of these terms, um, sport climbing is essentially uh, going up a mountain um, or a wall um, usually not like a, a very big route, um, usually like 30 to 150 feet um, with fixed bolts, so it's considered like the safest approach to go in, you're roped in, you clip into these bolts and you just go up and it's a way to do like really hard climbing but without kind of the uh, possibility of like falling and ripping out your protection from the wall and like going splat. Um It's particularly popular and it's one of the like the main methods that you do in a climbing gym, um, so there's that. Uh, bouldering is um, something where basically you climb big boulders. Um, like I used to, m- my husband when he was first doing bouldering, just imagine him like climbing to the top of like a five, six, a five foot rock or something like that, and just like getting on top of a boulder. Um, that's not what it is. Uh, outside, it's basically you usually go up to about 30 feet on like a pretty big, you know, close to house size boulder, um, and you just climb up the rock, uh, but you are not roped in. Um, And then like in a gym context, this might be a wall of about 30 feet, again, you're not roped in, you just climb up and then you kind of climb back down or jump down if you have no respect for your knees. Uh, Free soloing is the one that people oftentimes uh, confuse with some of these other um, techniques, this is where you climb without ropes, um, so it's considered like the most objectively dangerous. Um, Historically, people wouldn't climb big walls that way, but increasingly uh, that's becoming a thing. Uh, speed climbing is basically using any of this, these techniques um, plus some others and just getting up as quickly as you can. So sometimes kind of as a competition, sometimes just as a way to like test yourself. Um, trad climbing is um, basically just the opposite of sport climbing. Um, you go up, but you put in your own bolts and stuff. So it can be a little bit more tricky, uh, a little bit more dangerous, um, and so on. Uh, and then aid climbing is kind of like the old version where you have like these massive bolts and. Um, you uh, kind of climb these nylon ropes and stuff and you do less climbing on the mountain itself um, and you more kind of climb the tools that you bring with you, so it's uh, a little different. Okay, so the point is there are these variations, it's okay if you don't remember um, what each of these are, just that there are different approaches. Um, So this is kind of the the field of like the main ways that people do climbing. Um, If we were to kind of step back and go beyond the field of climbing and kind of bring in the outside world there are a bunch of other groups that become um, important especially for the study of norms. So uh, so if we have at the center climbers and again I want to remind you that these are um, a lot of times like not uh, like the overlap uh, there's sometimes more overlap than is represented here. Um, Okay so you have climbers at the center then you have things like uh, funders and sponsors increasingly professional climbers um, especially like starting in the 80s maybe the late 70s um, started getting uh, sponsored by like the north face or patagonia um, cliff bar and so on um, so you have people basically giving money um, and gear to to professional climbers um, you have uh, climbing advocacy organizations and uh, <laughs> nature organizations in theory these obviously could be separate but a lot of times um, they're increasingly um, combined, like the access fund is trying to pr- protect uh, climbing areas, and part of that also kind of includes environmentalism. Then you have regulators, so this might be like the, um, in the case of like national parks in the U.S., uh, these might be park rangers, um, sometimes it's just like regular authorities, so like in um, the state of Hawaii, at one point they climbed, or, um, Prohibited uh, or closed a bunch of cliffs and just said no more climbing. Uh, so, basically, some sort of uh, governing authority that says, like, yes or no, you can do climbing, how you do it, do you need like a license, and so on. Um, then we get things like mainstream media, so like New York Times, Time Magazine, and so on. Um, or uh, one example that uh, actually won't come up, but um, Playboy Magazine, uh, that actually became one of my data sets. Um, fans, uh, of course. Uh, and then we have like the climbing media specifically, so like the magazines that I mentioned like Outside um, Climbing, All Climbing, Rock and Ice and so on, um, and that completes the circle. So there are a lot of different kind of groups that are having their say and kind of influencing the norms of um, of climbing and are also responding to the kind of trends within climbing. Okay, uh, going back to new institutional theory and kind of adapting that to this particular context. Um, so. Basically, I'm taking these um, kind of the original theory of new institutional um, uh, theory from uh, institutional isomorphism, so these specific pressures. So the um, the ones on the um, sorry, on, on this side for you, uh, on the left side, these mimicry, and normative, and coercion, those come specifically from new institutional theory. Um, and to some extent, the uh, rectangles that go with them are also um, from new institutional theory, but I'm just kind of tweaking the actors a little bit. So, um, so new institutional theorists, for example, say that um, funders and regulators are basically responsible for coercive power. They usually tell people, um, organizations, like, we'll give you money to do this thing, or if you want to be accredited, this is what you have to do. Um, so this is pretty easy to adapt to climbing, but it's, it's basically the same thing. We will give you money to do what we want you to do. So like, you know, we will give you money to wear uh, Patagonia gear or whatever. Um, or we will give you money to like go and climb this particular wall or something that we think would be really cool. Um, authorities or regulators, we have the authority to make you do what we want you to do or by extension not do. Um, professionals and experts in the new institutional context, this would be like, um, like professionals like you know academics, it could be professional associations, um, but basically the idea is these are people who have the training, the knowledge, the expertise, to basically say what the right thing to do is, like what the the most efficient, the most effective way. And so people listen to them because they want to do the most efficient thing. Okay. Um, so again, kind of uh, relatively easy to to extend the climbing context uh, with some tweaks, probably not talking about like professional organizations and so on. And then finally, this is um, one that's uh, kind of the interesting kind of tweak. Um, With the new institutional theory, there's this uh, understanding that basically when people are uncertain about the right way to do things, or organizations I should say, um, they'll basically turn to the biggest, the most successful, um, but basically the kind of industry leading um, organizations out there and they'll just copy whatever they're doing. And The idea here is they're successful, they must know what they're doing, so we're just going to copy what they do. In this case, we can think of this as like the pro climbers, the the most successful um, climbers. Okay. so, in terms of uh, the kind of specific um, things that I want to analyze, um, so the kind of to run through some of the episodes, um, I'm looking at uh, instances where um, there's usually some sort of change. So, it's either there's like the emergence of a new type of, of climbing style, or there's a major accomplishment that somebody has, or something really bad happens. Um, these kind of create episodes. Um, And in these episodes, we have these moments of significant debate where people kind of talk about what the expectations are about how you should behave um, and like the pros and cons and so on. Um, And sometimes out of these debates, we get new norms um, and sometimes it just kind of solidifies old norms. Um, I'm not gonna talk about all of these, but just to give you um, some sense of like some of the types of episodes that I'm talking about. These are like ongoing debates or one-time debates. um, And also these are within the rock climbing field, but where, you know, outside groups might um, might chime in. So the question of whether or not to use bolts, uh, bouldering, is it real climbing? Uh, sport versus trad, again, like is sport climbing real tri- cli- cl- 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 climbing and so on, free solo. Um, climbing for the wrong reasons, uh, taking sponsors—you know, like—is it good or bad? Uh, speed records, should you go for it? Uh, free base, which is a um, a type of free solo where you have a, a like a base jumping suit on um, and can uh, jump off. The, or sorry, you can climb up without um, without a rope, and then if you fall, you just bring out your uh, parachute essentially. Um, there are also some um, other episodes that I'm still kind of having a hard time um, categorizing them, but basically they have to do with environmentalism and colonialism, um, and so for the rest of this talk, I'm not gonna talk about them, but I do wanna flag that they're in there and I'm still trying to figure out how to analyze them. Okay, so enough with the descriptive statistics, now the actual analyses. So I wanna give you um, just two examples. So one is this question of to bolt or to not bolt. So this is a debate that happened in the 1950s um, kind of ended by the 1970s, 1970-ish, um, but it basically features a debate between these two guys, Royal Robbins and Warren Harding, um, each of whom wrote a book. Uh, Royal Robbins wrote this um, kind of very serious book about how to how to do rock climbing, um, and then Warden, uh, Hard, or sorry, Warren Harding um, wrote kind of a farce um, called Downward Bound, uh, A Mad Guy to Rock Climbing. Um, so it kind of gives you a sense of their different approaches. Um, in terms of specifics, what they were debating about, um, Royal Robbins was a proponent of um, kind of a, a pure way of climbing, where you would basically leave the, the rock wall as intact as possible, or, um, and like not use a lot of bolts. So like this was very early when um, climbing was developing as a sport, uh, and they would climb on these nylon uh, rope things. So instead of climbing the features of the rock, they would basically like you know essentially have rope ladders up. Like it was harder than that, but for simplicity, I'll just say that. Whereas Warden Harding um, started introducing, uh, or was one of the people who introduced using these big pitons or bolts and like hammering them into the wall, which was very, um, took a lot of time, took a lot of effort, uh, but it made your climbing a bit more secure because you had these big bolts that you basically couldn't remove. um, But they were also very damaging to the rock, um, and again, they couldn't be removed. So, so from a kind of aesthetic standpoint, this is really problematic. these two guys uh, kind of went back and forth um, kind of competing with one another, uh, essentially for, to some extent for dominance, to um, some extent like for who's a better climber, um, and so they did a number of um, really epic kind of first descents or first climbs, um, but what essentially huh. ended the debate was when uh, Warren Harding climbed what was then called uh, the Wall of the Early Morning Light, which is um, this one, this really sheer wall, um, which is now called the Don Wall. Um, it's an extremely uh, kind of smooth rock face, so it was very difficult to climb. Um, and so he climbed it with his Bolt method. Um, it uh, took them like 27 days, um, but anyway, they finally did it. Um, this was one of the, the climbs that, like, even back in the 1970s, um, or early, early 1970s, uh, made it into the New York Times. Uh, so this was like a really big deal. Um, Royal Robbins then tried to um, climb it again, and he was um, like every time uh, Harding would do a climb, Robbins would go up and and chop the bolts. Um, So on this route, he tried to chop Ah. the bolts again um, and got like a few pitches up um, and decided, you know, this is actually a really hard route and like also a very beautiful route. um, And just, you know, this feels wrong to do. Um, And so he essentially let Sleeping Dogs lie, and there ended the debate between um, these two guys. And I think. From what I can tell it seems like um, most people like at the time there was some debate but now it seems like more people are kind of on um, on Harding's side that it was like you know yes this moved the the field forward Um, and he was able to do his like massively amazing climb um, so there's that the second example I want to talk about is uh, Free Solo so this has been the subject of a lot of debate um, especially since the 1970s maybe before but definitely in the 1970s um And then it again kind of picked up in 2008 with the rise of Alex Honnold, who is uh, the climber behind me. So again, free solo is the type of climbing that doesn't include ropes or harnesses. You just go out on the wall, you have your climbing shoes, you have a chalk bag, and you climb. Um So if you fall, obviously it can be very bad. Um, so uh, the, the episode I want to focus on here is um, the Cliff Bar debacle of 2014. So I uh, I think in 2013 or 2014, um, Sender Films released uh, a really fun documentary um, called uh, Valley Uprising about kind of the history of rock climbing in Yosemite Valley, and it featured a number of different climbers, um, kind of both the kind of original climbers and then, um, some of the the newer ones from the various generations, um, and it showed kind of what people are doing today, but you know in 2013, 2014, um, and so this involved things like free solo, free base. Um, and some, some other um, techniques. Um, and it also showed them like dirt bagging around uh, Yosemite and like running from the park rangers and stuff. Uh, Cliff Bar, who had been sponsoring a number of these climbers decided they would withdraw their support and kind of ended their contract um, early with, uh, with these five climbers. And it made a lot of news, um, again, kind of illustrating the way in which climbing has become mainstream. Um, there are a bunch of articles from like NPR, the New York Times, Alex Honnold wrote a response um, that was published in the New York Times. Um, this was covered by the climbing journals as well, so it kind of created a lot of um, a lot of debate. Uh, and then my favorite is um, this one where people pointed out that like basically the uh, Cliff Bar logo doesn't show any ropes, and so it's kind of hypocritical of them to, uh, to withdraw. Oh, and sorry, I didn't explain the the reason um, Cliff Bar gave is that they decided that um, that these people were doing um, the the type of climbing they were doing was too dangerous, and they didn't want to endorse it. Um Initially, there was some pushback, um, and people were like, you know, this is really awful. Especially, a lot of the fans were were mad and kind of again pointing out the hypocrisy. There's, um, I don't have the original Twitter post because it's been taken down, but um, the, that picture is from a uh, Twitter post where people were criticizing. Um, but since then, a lot of the people, kind of um, the the well-known figures, for the most part, have kind of seemed to not exactly side with Cliff Bar, but just kind of like not criticize them anymore. So that's been interesting. So again, kind of <laughs> it's been mostly resolved. Um, okay, so uh, in terms of, kind of trying to map through these different types of, um, of debates that have come up, um, I came up with three categories that you can kind of sort the different um, sets of debates into. Uh, one of the biggest categories is just aesthetics, and we can kind of think of this as like a cognitive normative to use the new institutional language, um, just kind of like what are the expectations that kind of like almost implicit, like not really articulating it, but just this is the way to do it. Um, a lot of times it gets described in terms of like purity or aesthetics, this is just like the most pleasing way to do things. Um, pretty much all of the uh, debates that I'm, I'm talking about can go into the, the aesthetics category. But what's interesting is all of these can also be parceled out into two other categories. One is the risk category, um, and the other one is the efficacy category. So um, free solo, climbing for the wrong reasons, free base and speed records are all um, often have uh, debates about the riskiness of these endeavors. Um, and then the bolts are not bouldering sport versus trout and taking sponsors. Um, oftentimes get discussed in terms of efficacy, like what the, what do these things allow you to do? Both of these categories, the the risk and the efficacy, you can think of as essentially like rational, like they don't have to be objectively rational, but they're at least couched in this way of, these are kind of like rational reasons. Whether or not it's correct that these are the most risky endeavors, that's actually up for debate, but if they are, they're at least perceived as like, it's irrational to do this risky thing, Um, or it's rational to think about, um, at least in the the neo institutional uh, sense, um, that this is an effective way to do things, so it's rational to do it this way, Um, okay. So um, so this categorization um, is interesting because if you were to kind of map out these different, like the what happens over the course of, of these debates, there's an interesting trend, and I'm really curious to see if this, this picks up, but so far, all of the debates that I've gone through, um, kind of stick with this pattern. So if you start off with the the top, you start off with some sort of claim that basically this is a bad thing to do, this is the wrong way to do climbing, this is the wrong way to be a climber, Either this goes into the rational considerations direction or the aesthetics direction. But what's interesting is all the aesthetics ones eventually get basically um, at the field level discussed as rational considerations. So, like, you know, if it's an aesthetic issue. Like people can keep arguing that endlessly, um, so instead they usually get resolved by these rational considerations. So think back to the um, the Royal Robbins and uh, Warren Harding debate. Like ultimately, at the end of the day, it was hey, both actually let you do some pretty epic climbs. So in that sense, we'll let it go. Um, and then likewise uh, with the um, the Cliff Bar thing, it basically becomes this like issue of risk rather than like aesthetics, and that becomes the dominant consideration. Um, once you go uh, from rational considerations and it goes into the too risky or highly effective. Now if you go back to who are the groups that are making these determinations, um, so the kind of rectangle that's on my screen purple but here is kind of a, a grayish color, that's kind of like just the general feel as the background. Um, but then you have uh, this one is the kind of pinkish one is like the blenders. Um, they tend to be more interested in this risky stuff and then in terms of the successful climbers, they tend to be the ones determining the highly effective. So if you look at like which types of arguments are brought up by which groups, it tends to be parceled out um, in this in this direction. Um, and then I didn't mention this one. This one in the background is supposed to be just like general climbers. So general climbers um, as opposed to like professional climbers, um, but like they think about both the rational considerations and the aesthetic considerations, but in terms of once you break it down between the rational considerations and the, um, the efficacy ones, uh, the funders are, pretty much on the risk side and then the successful climbers um, kind of uh, break out with the highly effective stuff. Okay, so uh, to kind of wrap things up, so I think we can apply new institutional theory to other settings um, beyond organizational settings and kind of get some headway on the deviance. Uh, understanding. uh, There's definitely some limits to this. Um, So for example, this doesn't explain all views um, about norms. So it's, I'm really looking at a certain type of discussions about norms. Those that are at the field level, they're visible. Um, I'm not able to go into like hidden pockets of like, you know, you go to a random crag and ask like what, you know, people just going out and climbing think about these things. I'm really looking at these discussions at the field level. So that can, you know, possibly have some um, some implications. Um, I'm also looking at debates within the climbing field, but not like this model doesn't help us to explain how climbing went from this marginal sport to a fairly mainstream thing, uh, where it went from like basically being this deviant thing. Also, like weightlifting, for example, it used to be super deviant, now it's super mainstream. Um, this doesn't help us to explain that part of of that deviance model. Okay. Um, it will be interesting to see if this. Holds up for other fields, like you know, like risk is something that you see in other places, but maybe there are other types of rational considerations. Is it the case that aesthetic considerations often give way to the, the rational considerations? Um, and then ultimately, um, I'm not yet convinced about this, but you know, maybe new institutional theory can help us to revive deviant studies and make it into something else. So that's it. Thank you very much.